millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast, and the first in a two-part special on the upcoming US election. I spoke to Amanda Renteria, former National Political Director on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. We talked about the state and resilience of American democracy, what happened four years ago, the differences between then and now, and whether it's really safe to be optimistic about November. Amanda boasts an impressive political CV, having held roles as Chief of Operations for California's Attorney General and a Legislative Advisor in the US Senate. She's now CEO of Code for America, an organisation that seeks to make government work in the digital age for those who need it most. Her knowledge and expertise are really refreshing, so that's enough from me. Here's our conversation. So hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for coming on the Progressive Britain podcast. Thanks for having me. So um, first of all, to to kick us off, tell us and our listeners about um, Code for America, um, what it does, how maybe it's embedded in your politics personally and your view of the relationship between American government and American citizens, and maybe how technology has, has increased opportunities for people to better utilize government government resources and services. Sure. Well, just to step back, I mean, we at Code for America, we believe that the way to change people's lives at scale is government and technology. And our what we try and do is make sure to partner with government so that it actually works. Um, what's interesting about this time that we are in is for the last 10 years, Code for America has really worked on making government programs work, particularly in communities that are often left out. Um, now, that used to be something that we were trying to really reach a gap of communities. Um, but now with COVID, all of our programs are in question in terms of how are we reaching as many people as possible, particularly during this pandemic and during this crisis. And so all the work that we've been doing, particularly to reach hard to reach communities, um, has seemed to surface and be at the forefront of so much of what is happening today, everything from school lunch programs and how do you get resources for families to buy food when school lunches or free school lunch program is now closed because people aren't going into school, or how do you make sure that people can get tax benefits when they used to rely on going into a community center in order to fill out forms? How do we now offer that digitally? And so um, it's been a real test for us, but also for our country to truly welcome digital in a new way in all of our communities across the country. Fantastic. And and obviously the pandemic has changed so much about um, 
what that what that relationship between government and people mean. And we've seen that the Republicans have been pretty recalcitrant and even expend, uh, temporarily expanding welfare support to to Americans during the pandemic. Um, and obviously, you work within um, you, you work connecting people to the American the American social welfare system. Um, and in your opinion, is the American social safety net sufficient? Um, let's assume that there are sufficient organizations like yours to connect people using using technology to um, governmental resources. Is the system sufficient in itself? Um, is the problem connecting people to the system or does there need to be an expansion of the, the base of the American welfare system? Because internationally speaking, the American system is kind of infamously shallow. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you are. You've nailed it, which is no, it's not enough. It's not been strong enough. And over time, it's gotten weaker and weaker. What uh, COVID has done across the country is you've seen swaths of the American people who, frankly, might have never imagined they would need a social safety net all of a sudden finding themselves um, using the social safety net in ways they never understood before, cared about, maybe even thought of. And that has really put a light on how services work. Um, you know, I think every family, as an example, every family across America now understands the importance of childcare. <laughs> Some people never even thought about it. And all of a sudden their kids are home and they can't do anything about it. And so I think there's been a real reckoning in America about what it means to have a resilient country, what it means to have a strong social safety net, and why it's so incredibly important um, for all families. And that for us has been, um, I, I welcome it. But it's also now we're at the point where, um, yes, we've recognized it, but what are we going to do about it? What are our poli political leaders now going to do about it? And that's really the kind of conversation that I expect we'll continue to have between now and Election Day, but also even throughout the first year of whatever administration is in uh, 2021. Right. And, and, and looking maybe back over the last few decades, do you think there's been a tendency um a, dis a tendency of disillusionment maybe from people, from, from government's resources and the potential positive impact that government can have on citizens' lives because we know that these last two elections have been more um, more culturally divisive but therefore have, have garnered maybe more attention from the populace. Um, was there maybe a tendency in which Americans and people in Britain as well weren't really aware of the ways in which government can affect their lives? Um and do you see, do you see, I mean, it's difficult to look for silver lining in, in the pandemic and in Donald Trump, but do you think potentially um, these things have, have increased people's awareness of what the government can do for them? I do. I'm, um, I'm optimistic by nature. So perhaps that's why I lean into where is the silver lining and how do we make sure to use this moment to make us better as people, as a country. But I'll say this, I don't, I think it is somewhat about disillusionment. But I think it's as much about education. So the fact that in this country we haven't spent a lot of time as a former high school teacher, um, I know we don't spend enough time teaching our kids about how the government actually affects their lives and a layer of responsibility that it's your government too. And how are you going to make sure, whether it's voting or speaking out on behalf of what you think you need out of your government, um, I think there's this, the, the lack of education allows for disillusionment to come in, allows for, frankly, today we're seeing a lot of misinformation out there because people don't have a basic understanding and education of the government and the role they play in it. And so partly what's happening is you're seeing people educate themselves 
right now. Um, and that's a little bit dangerous because of all the misinformation. But as we think about our country going forward, we do need to bring it back into schools and make sure there's a real understanding about um, people's not only understanding of what government is, but their role in it. Um, and so that is the silver lining is I think there will be a continual conversation about what is it that civic engagement means? How do we involve ourselves? How do we educate ourselves going forward? It's very interesting. I, I completely agree with you. Um, you talk about the future, looking to November. Um, the polls have looked promising for Biden, but can we rely on the polls? Is there not a strong possibility that a number of um, quiet Trump voters could upend the polling expectations come election day? So I trust the I actually do trust what we've been seeing. Um, you know, I think people remember 2016 differently than was what was actually taking place. At this time, uh, last or four years ago, the race was a heck of a lot tighter. And it was and it got tighter and tighter as it got closer and closer to Election Day. And I think people um, don't remember that quite well, but it was always pretty tight. What is different in this election cycle is that there has been a consistent and growing gap for Biden throughout this entire process. And so I do believe that gap is real. I don't believe there are quiet voters out there who are all of a sudden going to show up someday. If anything, we're seeing the growth in registration of new voters. You're seeing the excitement and the energy of younger voters. Um, we're seeing the early stages of vote by mail come in look very differently than we did in 2016. So I do think the numbers and the polling are different. Um, I also know that mis misinformation is different as well. And that's what worries me. That's the part that um, hasn't changed, which is people are still um, able to reach targeted, micro-targeted communities and change the intensity or the logistics or even give them misinformation on where to vote. And so there's a lot of that that is in greater um, is happening in greater volume this time around. So on the one hand, I actually do believe the polls. On the other, I think there is more avenues for misinformation that does uh, give me a sense of just concern as we go into these final thirty plus days of this election cycle. I, I definitely want to talk about that in a minute, but firstly, just to something you said um, at the beginning of that of that um, statement. What is what do you think the consistency of Joe Biden's lead is indicative of because he, he wasn't the leader in the Democratic primaries the whole time. But as you say, his lead has been more consistent than Hillary Clinton's was in 2016. So what do you think that's born out of for Joe Biden? I think there's a um, consistency about what uh, Trump has done. So the idea that COVID has gotten worse over this period of time um, is a validation of why you need the kind of leadership that Joe Biden brings. I mean, just the idea of him wearing a mask and seeing um, Trump in, at the hospital the last few days, um, that is a validating point about what Biden has been saying and um, the kind of leadership Trump has exhibited throughout the last four years. So I think some of this is just things are coming into light as voters are starting to think about the election coming before them. Um, but I think there's also Biden has been a consistent force. A lot of people, you know, I think uh, a lot of people haven't necessarily tuned in and might have known Obama, but they didn't know Biden. And Biden is showing up, as he always has, incredibly authentic. And so as folks have gotten to know him, particularly a younger generation, they know what they get. 
And while they might disagree with certain things here or there, they know what they're getting. And just that steadiness of knowing what you are voting for, I think, has really played in the favor of Biden, particularly right now when people just want some stability um, and really some prowess and leadership and credibility. And that is what Biden brings. I think that that does explain a lot of it. So going back to what you were saying about misinformation, of course, we saw, I mean, 2016 was a, it was a kind of the first election, I think, where the world saw what disinformation can do. Um, and being, um, being centrally involved in that, what did you learn from 2016 in terms of that misinformation? And like you said, are you more worried about it now in 2020? Or do you think it's the same actors? It's going to be the same kind of problem. We're going to have the same kind of investigations into it in 2021 and 2022 that we have done um, since since 2016. Or do you think it could be it could be even worse and could be even more dangerous? I'm, I'm certainly more worried about it because I think foreign actors have actually gotten smarter and better. Um, I think they have worked over the course of uh, the eight, 2018 election to learn exactly what counties and what people were filling in certain areas. Um, and so that has gotten better. Um, and that concerns me. The other, the other piece, though, that gives me some hope. <laughs> I, I mentioned I was optimistic, um, but what gives me some hope is that um, it felt in 2016 that we were the only ones sort of living this world of what is happening and why are we seeing these unusual things surface. Now everybody is involved in this. Now we actually people are aware there are court cases around the country. Um, there are court cases happening all across the country in terms of what kind of tactics are being used, and we're able to see them and find them much earlier than ever before. Um, I think the idea that people can vote by mail means that election day um, might not be as risky or it's not all eggs in one basket on one day. Um, so there are a lot of things that have now changed since then. Um, and I and I think um, while more people are aware, there's also more going on behind the scenes, and that worries me. Um, but I'd always rather us be having a discussion about it because then I know it can we can address it if we know about it. Yeah, the more it's brought into the light, the better chance we have of of combating it. Um, before we continue to talk about about November, I do want to ask you a, a bit more about 2016. Um, I was in America, I lived there um, during the election. I remember election night vividly. Um, we talk about misinformation and clearly misinformation was a huge factor um, in the result, um, as were, you know, certain investigations opened a few days before the election. But I remember reading um, Hillary Clinton's book about the election, what happened. And um, she mentions um, quite explicitly that she feels that sexism was a central aspect of the of, of her loss and of Trump's win. Um, is that is that something you agree with? I think it was a part um, I think it was a part in seeing a woman run um, for the first time ever in the country and not exactly, and I think the country not exactly knowing how to handle that or what to do with it. And so it allowed Trump to define the rules in the large part because he was running against something different. Um, and I think, but I think the part in that is yes, it's sexism because it was the first time it was done, but it was also the way that Trump ran and his lack of thinking about norms. And yet having, having the first woman ever have to be confined by certain norms that people expected. <laughs> and so as I look back on it, that's the way in which sexism played is that she had to reach a certain credibility bar 
and he could kind of do whatever he wanted. And that was a lot more interesting and entertaining, which is why it got so much attention at the time and why the media handled it differently, why even normal actors and stakeholders handled it differently at the time. Um, so yes, it's a little bit of sexism. Um, yes, it's a little bit of he was a different and is a different kind of candidate. And then the third piece is that people just didn't know what was going on behind the scenes that really did affect um, the election, as we've seen in intelligence reports. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Because it's, it's, of course, it's difficult that the calculus that, you know, as national political director in the campaign um, and everyone else who was working for you, I'm sure you must have struggled to work out how to deal with the fact that Trump was just playing by different rules. I think a lot of people I've heard have been critical of the fact that Hillary Clinton was um, so composed and so calm the entire time. I remember during the debates, the, um, the, the difference between the way that these two candidates presented themselves. Do you think it would have changed things if Hillary was maybe more bombastic, more out there, more aggressive? Or do you think that people would have simply, again, built that into their Im embedded sexism and said it's just a kind of crazy, angry woman? <laughs> I don't think the country was quite ready for um, uh, the women that we saw win all across the country in 2018, right? The very confident, aggressive, we're going to stand up, we're going to have a voice, we're going to run, quote, authentically. Um, I think if people tried to do that in 2016, you wouldn't have had the applause that really came through in 2018 and you're seeing now in 2020. And so some of this is all about timing as well. Um, do, do I think that Maybe that moment would have been characterized differently, sure, but at the end of the day, would it have changed results? I don't think so, because I'm not sure the country was quite ready for it. In fact, I think most of the country didn't actually believe that a woman of her qualifications would not win at that, at that very moment. And so, I mean, a lot has changed now, and truth has really come into view for women all across America, which is why you saw 2018 be, you know, the beginning of what I think will be, you know, the generation of women, not just a year of the woman. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think she laid the groundwork, though, where everyone got to pressure test themselves of what would I have done in that in that instance? What will I do in the future in that instance? And what am I going to do now knowing that this is in the environment in which I lead? Well, I, yeah, I really hope that that's that that is what it what um, 2016 was and did set the platform for, like you say, um, that generation of women and a new kind of politics. I just remember how I felt on that election night. And I know it must have been worse for you, but we have to try and I have to try and draw some some kind of long-term positive outcome from it. Um, so I appreciate that. That's given me something to hold on to there. Um, going back to, to polling briefly, uh, a lot of polling is done on a national basis. Um, but 
viewer selection, of course, is not determined by the popular vote, as we as we unfortunately know. What's your view on the Electoral College um, as an electoral system, um, particularly given its origins um, tied to effectively a compromise around slavery? Yeah, you know, I think we've got to um, really review how our systems work in general, and our electoral system is a huge part of this. I am excited to see how many new generation voices are now at the table in the political sphere. I would say 10 years ago, we couldn't have even had this, five years ago, we couldn't have even had this discussion. But now that you are seeing new political leaders rise, I see more and more every year we'll have an opportunity to reassess whether we've got the right kinds of systems all across the board in place. And the electoral system, not only do we need to review its intent and where it started, but then we've got to align once again on what what we should do to ensure that all states have a voice. And at the same time, we're not confined to a handful that really determine who the next president is going to be. And so um, I look forward to this evolving conversation and it absolutely needs to happen. And I have full confidence it will as we're seeing new leaders emerge. Um, of course, it would be easier for, for that to occur um, if we have Democrats, a, a Democrat in the White House and Democrats in the Senate. And I wanted to ask you, in light of um, Republicans giving their blessing to a new appointee, despite the hypocrisy that it, that it evidences, do you think the Democrats need to play dirtier, as it were? If, if, if Biden wins the presidency and Democrats do manage to flip the Senate at some point over the next three years, should they consider abolishing the filibuster and potentially even adding adding judges to the Supreme Court? It's interesting you characterize it as um, play dirtier. I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would characterize it in those terms. And I think in some ways, what's happening is Democrats are being confined by norms. Um, I remember being in the room about when we were having the discussion about how do we ensure more judges are confirmed because Republicans were actually holding, blocking any judge at any lower court from being confirmed. And so it moved the Senate or Democrats in the Senate one step more into utilizing the power they had in order to get some judges through. That has now led to, if I go back in time, and I ask myself that question. We had a very, it was a, it was a thoughtful conversation about should you utilize the full extent of your power and change it entirely at that moment? And what Democrats decided at that very moment was no. Let's ratchet it up, but no, don't use the full extent of your power. What we have seen in the last really four years, but in this particular instance with the Supreme Court, is Republicans are using the full extent of their power. And I think that will have effects on the future on how political leaders view this system and view what they should do at that very moment. I think it's actually unfortunate, but I feel like that train has moved forward and Democrats now have to ask that question of themselves when they're sitting in the room and they say, what do we do now? Because this, if power was different, this is how it would be, uh, how it would go forward. And so um, unfortunately, I think we're all going to have a new reckoning of how political power is used and the redefinition of norms. And so I do think, and you're already seeing, Democrats are trying to define them, trying to not lock themselves into norms um, and saying, what do we do in this moment of time to utilize our power that we do have? And I think that question will continue going forward. Mm, so maybe more of a political, a political realism, maybe a new political realism. That's right. That's right. And um, 
talking about norms, talking about um, acting kind of within the constitution, within the rules of American democracy. Um, what is the best way to combat the possibility that Trump loses the electoral college, loses the election, but refuses to accept the result? Um, looking from a distance, I am concerned that America's democracy may not be resilient enough to deal with that kind of a crisis. Do you think it is? And, and how do you think that would play out? Or do you think it's totally unrealistic? Mm -hmm. So I think it is resilient enough. I think um, it will, ro uh, the big piece here, and you're hearing it out of Democratic leaders all across the country, which is it is important to win big. Um, that 14 point or 16 today, 16 point gap is an enormous win. If Democrats are winning and vote by mail before election day, if then they are winning on election day, visually, you know, lines um, all throughout the country. Um, then there's that's a resounding here is where leadership should be and Biden should lead this country. I think that makes it very difficult um, for Republicans. And that really, to me, is the key is how do Republicans treat this moment? Do they believe what they see? Um, are they allowing Trump to be complicit in this election to say, I'm going to, you know, I'm go I'm going to fight this election till the very end. And so the more Democrats win, the bigger that gap, um, it's really important. And it's really important that that messaging actually starts now. And so one of the things that I've really struggled with in the media here um, is a lot of people do say, oh, this is just like 2016. He was behind. It's not at all like 2016. Trump, Trump has been behind, has barely one time been above 50% approval rating. We've never had a president in that kind of um, situation going into an election cycle in the way that he has. And Biden has, we've never had a presidential candidate as big of a 16 point gap as we do right now. And so this isn't at all like 2016. And I think that that part is really important for people to understand that right now it is looking like the country is speaking with one voice um, for Biden. And it needs to feel like that all the way through to have any shot for Trump to recognize that he isn't the chosen president of this country. I have to say, I woke up this morning feeling like I have for the last four years, which is uh, worried. Um, certainly not optimistic, but you are, you are, you are sort of changing my mind. Are you telling me that? Are you telling me I can't be optimistic? No, I think you must be optimistic. I think I think we must be optimistic here in this country, but I also think the numbers are showing something different than we saw in 2016. I also think that, you know, when you look across what is happening with endorsements, and again, from the view of a political director, um, there is one candidate that is getting bipartisan endorsements consistently. Um, there is one candidate that is bringing the full swath of the generations and races together right for the first time ever in this country and so i i i am i'm hopeful about that i'm also hopeful that you have a whole young generation who has now learned for the last four years how to stand up and have their voices heard. And at the end of the day, they have a heck of a lot more energy than all of us. And so I do believe that this is what feels different about um, 2020, but will also carry us into a new, new country, a new kind of politics that really we need today in the world. I've got my fingers crossed and I, I really am starting to feel a bit more optimistic the longer you talk. Um, we've looked over the scene of the last few days. Obviously, the big news has been we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, and the big news has been the fact that that Donald Trump has been taken to uh, to hospital after after contracting 
COVID-19. Now, we saw with Boris Johnson here in Britain when he was sick, he, he Trump, we've seen Trump stand outside the White House and, and um, give a salute to the helicopter and, you know, looking like he's OK, standing on two legs and feeling better than Boris Johnson was at, um, during his illness. He was obviously in the ICU in intensive care. And there was one night that he openly talks about where he says it could have gone either way. So they are slightly different situations. But do you think Trump could come out of his illness um, with more popularity? Do you think it does um, positive things for him electorally? I think it helps with his base in general. I think anything Trump does um, helps with his base because um, they're so committed to him. But I think the reality is the last thing he wanted to talk about was coronavirus. Um, he wanted to talk about anything else besides coronavirus and healthcare. And so the fact that him having it now puts that front and center um, changes things. I think there's also a reality that if Republican members of Congress are susceptible to it, it really does change the Supreme Court conversation as well, which is the conversation and discussion he wanted to have at this point in this election cycle. And so logistically, I think it's actually changed some things. Again, do I think um, we are all human and there's a human aspect to seeing someone sick, seeing a leader sick? There absolutely is. And I think for a lot of people, maybe they'll take a look at him differently as here is now the healthy, you know, Trump emerging, what kind of guy is that? Um, I have been surprised to see how many resets Trump has received from the Republican Party, from the American people in general. Could that happen again? Sure. But the reality is we're going to be talking about now coronavirus all the way through election, which is not, which doesn't bode well for his track record and his leadership. And so looking forward, let's be optimistic. Let's say Biden wins the election. Over the next four years, do Democrats have to push the progressive agenda with speed and with force. I'm thinking about, you know, the Green New Deal, for example. Um, or is it incumbent on on a Biden presidency to be careful with its policies, to to um to keep hold of of a if the if the mandate comes through like you're suggesting and there is a significant mandate for the Democrats in this election, is it incumbent on Biden and the Democrats to to keep that that electoral mandate together, keep that diverse section of the American people who have voted for Joe Biden together by not pushing policies which could be seen as too progressive? Or do you think the next four years Democrats have to take the bull by the horns and really move forward? So I think number one, uh Biden will enter with a country he has to piece together in very short order. And that in and of itself will be a gathering of Republicans, Democrats, etc. In terms of a vision for the country, though, I do think times have changed. I don't think it's going back to the Clinton days or um, the Reagan or Bush days. I think we are in a new politics today where a new voice is emerging and it is going to be incumbent on President Biden, Vice President Harris, to really welcome all those new voices that came in in 2018, but also that will have delivered a presidency. And so the politics will be different. On the line of progressive versus, you know, the progressive versus conservative line, I think it will be a mixed bag, but there will certainly be things that um, we will see out of this presidency in the progressive space because a new voice has arisen and this presidency will again validate that. And President Biden, Vice President Kamala will address that. And by the way, we'll have a Congress filled with an energized new group of voices that are going to require a different kind of governance. Well, I have to say, I 
I really feel far more positive and far more optimistic <laughs> about November 3rd than I did half an hour ago. So thank you for that. And, and thank you very much for your time, for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a fantastic, fantastic discussion. I appreciate, I appreciate being on and I hope that um, we stay optimistic and hopeful and um, that everyone listening, if you have any friends in America that you are telling them to vote. Yes, vote, vote, vote. Thank you so much, Amanda. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.